Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We have been looking at the first 17 verses of Paul's introduction to the book of Romans, which is the longest introduction by far of any of his introductions in every other epistle he has written. Uh, this evening we want to we have come to the two verses that become the theme of the book of Romans. Let me read verses 16 and 17, where Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul lays out the gospel in the first few verses uh, of this introduction, and then he kind of distills it down into its main parts in verses 16 to 17 before he launches into the first major section. So these two verses are extremely important. Let me look, let's look at them just as we kind of break them down. But uh, first of all, Paul said, I am not ashamed. That's the word we want to focus on just for a moment. The question is, why would Paul even be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel as he com uh, contemplated uh, his trip to Rome? Well, I think one author summed it up pretty well. Let me read to you what he said. He said, and I quote, for one thing, the gospel was identified with a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no special appreciation for the Jews, and crucifixion was the lo lowest form of execution given a criminal. Why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified? Rome was a proud city, and the gospel came from Jerusalem, the capital city of one of the little nations that Rome had conquered. The Christians in that day were not among the elite of society. They were common people and even slaves. Rome had known many great philosophers and philosophies. Why pay any attention to a fable about a Jew who rose from the dead? Christians looked on each other as brothers and sisters, all one in Christ, which went against the grain of Roman pride and dignity. To think, uh, to think of a little Jewish tent maker, Paul, going to Rome to preach such a message is almost laughable, end quote. But Paul was not ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed. You know, I have to uh, confess that um, in my earlier years of being a Christian, I was ashamed at times to share Jesus. Uh, I was ashamed uh, because I was afraid of what people were going to think about me. Uh, were they going to think less of me? Were they going to uh, ridicule me? And uh, there were times when I knew I should have said something for the Lord, but I held back because I didn't want, you know, people to think wrongly or badly of me. Now, I'd like to think I've matured since those early days, um, but the question still remains, are we ashamed of being Christians, are we ashamed of how people perceive us or will perceive us if we say we love Jesus? 
These are not easy days to be a Christian. There have been times in our nation's history where Christianity was kind of in vogue. And to be a Christian, to say you were a Christian, wasn't tough at all. In fact, it was a badge of honor. That has changed. Now, we have moved into a time in our nation's history, and I don't think it's going to get better before it gets worse, where being a Christian is looked down upon, uh, where Christians seem to be the only group people can ridicule with impunity. And to the young people, we need to ask, are you more concerned about being um, cool than being a Christian? The devil has targeted young people. We'll talk a little bit more about this on Sunday. But Paul said, I am not ashamed. You know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ hung on a cross naked for us. That's what the Romans did. They wanted to humiliate. That was it. Not only was it an excruciatingly painful to be crucified, but they, want to max they wanted to maximize the humiliation, so they stripped a prisoner naked and then crucified him. He hung on a cross naked, despising the shame, Roman, uh, Romans tells us in chapter 12. But he was not ashamed to call us brethren. And Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. As we have said before, the word gospel means good news. This was a common thing in those days. It was very common for um, heralds to go throughout the kingdom to announce good news, which is, was usually that the emperor uh, just had a new son. And that was good news, and it went quickly throughout the empire. Uh, Paul picked up on that and wants to announce the good news of the birth, not of the emperor's son, but of the king of kings' son. God Almighty, the birth of the Son of God. Now, guys, the question is, I mean, how could Paul <laughs> be ashamed of such a message when it came from God and centered on his Son, Jesus Christ? You know, one author said it well, but I want to read this because, you know, it gets into, begs a question. He said, and I quote, I am not ashamed of the way God chose to save sinful man. I'm not ashamed of the fact that God chose to save mankind through the cross, the most despised and humiliating way to die, through a crucified Jewish carpenter from a poor family who was despised and rejected by men, end quote. Now you read that and you go, well, yeah. It seems like God went out of his way to make this whole thing foolishness. Could God have done any more to cause people to think how foolish the gospel really was? No, I don't think he could have. So then why did he? He had a purpose in it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll read to you two verses. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 21 and 25. Why did God choose something so foolish to be the message that saved fallen mankind? Well, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, of course, when Paul said that, he wasn't saying that God is foolish. He was saying that God purposely chose something that would sound foolish to man to be the message that would save fallen mankind. And he did it because he didn't want pride to enter in. He didn't want it to be so intellectual a message that only a select few would comprehend it. He wanted it not only to be understood by everyone who heard it, but they would have to humble themselves to receive it because it was so bizarre, so completely contrary to what human beings would come up with if we had chosen the way by which we were saved. It would be feats of strength and intellectual contests and, you know, and how many Jeopardy shows did you have to win. I mean, just that's what we would do. The most worthy to be saved. When God purposely offered the gospel, first of all, who were the first ones who were announced to that Jesus had been born? Shepherds. If you know anything about shepherds, you know that they were the most despised members of society. They were the lowliest, only the most um, untrustworthy um, corrupt men of society bore shepherds and yet God chose shepherds to hear the, the announcement that the Savior had been born they were the first ones that he went to he was setting a precedent that God loves all people and he wants to see all men and women saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth isn't it wonderful that Jesus said I am the bread of life I am the living water. Do you realize if he would have said, I'm the caviar of life and the fine wine? That would have let a whole bunch of folks out. Bread and water are staples. Everybody has access to bread and water, signifying Jesus is for all men and women. All men and women. Anyone can be saved, right, if they come to him. So we need to pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, I know that a lot of us have become more bold in our witness uh, of Jesus. Um, but I pray that God would fall on us with a boldness we've never known before. Not a haughty boldness where we're just kind of putting people downward. So, you know, a humble boldness that is not afraid of anything. Because people's salvation is so important, it trumps our you know, desire not to be humiliated, right? So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us so full that we would not ever be ashamed of the gospel, but we would boldly stand up and declare it whenever the opportunity presents itself. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Listen, for it is the power. Let me stop there. You know, Rome loved power. They lived for power. They reveled in their power. But whereas Rome reveled in their military power to destroy life, destroy the lives of their enemies, God's power manifested through the gospel is the power to save life. Save life. To redeem and change a life from sin and death to life and peace eternally through Jesus Christ. 
You know, Paul experienced that power firsthand on the road to Damascus, and he never forgot it. He talked about it for the rest of his life, just as he is doing right here to begin his letter to the Romans. And remember now, they had never met him. Now, he did know a few folks that he had previously worked with who had moved to Rome, but for the most part, he didn't know those in the church of Rome. So he's introducing himself in the first 17 verses. And you know how it is with us Christians. You meet somebody who's a Christian, and you're, for some reason you got a little time to spend with each other. What's one of the first things you do? Tell me your testimony. We love testimonies. We love to hear how God worked in your life to bring you to Jesus, right? I love testimonies. They, they build my faith. And Paul was doing the same thing. He was introducing himself, but in a roundabout way, he was declaring his testimony. I mean, Paul was the recipient of the power of God, and it completely transformed his life. So much so that skeptics have come to Christ because they can't explain how a guy running as fast as he can in the, a, a direction away from Jesus Christ could almost overnight be spun around and fired out back the other way, running as hard as he can towards Jesus Christ. This has brought people to faith. And Paul said, here's what it was. I had an encounter with the risen Christ. Now, he visibly saw Christ. But everybody who has gotten saved has had an encounter with Jesus Christ. It might not be a visible thing, probably not. But the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes, touched their hearts, and they knew Jesus Christ was real. They just knew it. God had declared it to them, and they wound up getting saved and so on. But Paul said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, one of the reasons was because it was powerful. It was the power of God. The Greek word translated power, as many of you know, is dunamis, from which we get our English words dynamite and dynamic from. Guys, the gospel contains divine energy, divine energy, supernatural power that literally can recreate a person's life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul said. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I came across a little six-minute video this week of such a dramatic transformation in a young woman's life. And it tied into the message Sunday. We're going to end the message with it. I mean, we all know the power of God to transform a life. But when you hear it from the mouth of a little gal like this one and what God did in her life, six minutes, it's worth your time. The gospel is supernatural. I mean, it's, it's God's message. And when spoken from a heart that loves Jesus, the Holy Spirit energizes it and it pierces like no other sword or spear or anything could pierce way down deep the word of god paul said um gets way down deep uh, into the marrow right into our spiritual joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents 
of the heart. Only God's word can do that. And it has in every one of our lives and continues to be used to bring others to Christ every single day we're alive. But guys, nobody knows that the gospel is living and powerful like the devil does. Who constantly attacks the foundation of the gospel, listen, in an effort to neutralize its power. What is the foundation of the gospel, you ask? Let me read to you out of Isaiah. You can turn there. I'll read it to you out of the NLT, Isaiah 53. What is the foundation of the gospel? Here it is. Isaiah 53. Let's read verses 5 and 6. But he, Jesus, was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace with God. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the guilt and sins of us all. Now, guys, these are some of the best known and most loved verses in the Bible for evangelicals. They need very little comment, for they speak for themselves. In these verses, we have a prophecy of our Savior's punishment and death on our behalf. How he would be beaten for our transgressions and brutalized for our sins. How he would be mocked and ridiculed and nailed to a cross so that we might have peace with God and eternal life. Here we have in these verses the very foundation upon which the gospel is built. We call it penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Penal substitution means that Jesus was punished in our place. He was a substitute that took our judgment and died on our behalf, and in so doing, he atoned for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. As I just said, penal substitution is the foundation upon which the gospel is built. Without it, there is no gospel. Make no mistake about it. And the instrument that God used to make penal substitution a reality was the cross. Is it any wonder then that Satan has been attacking it from the very day Jesus was crucified until today? This shouldn't shock us. It's actually a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Keep your finger in Romans 1 and turn also to 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy 3, starting with verse 1, where Paul said, But know this, that, listen, in the last days, we are in the last days, the days just prior to Christ's return, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of, of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, he continues, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, 
having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, don't read over that so quickly. In the last days, you would have people come who would love pleasures more than God, but they would have a form of godliness and yet deny its power. What power? The power that makes a person truly godly. What is that? It's salvation. Go back to Romans 1.16. Scoffers would, or people would come, Paul said, having a form of godliness but denying its power, the power to transform lives into uh, truly godly people. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Guys, the power of the gospel is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which alone can atone for our sins. You know, Roger Oakland, who has come out and spoken at our church, uh, in his book, Faith Undone, had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, The hardened core of the Christian faith is based upon Jesus Christ's shed blood at Calvary as the only acceptable substitutionary atonement for mankind's sins. The gospel message requires this foundation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Thus, every person alive should receive the penalty of spiritual death, hell, because none of us is without sin since we are born with our sin nature intact. Satan hates the gospel message. He understands that the gospel means and his he understands what the gospel means, and his agenda is to deceive mankind from understanding and believing so they can suffer eternally with him. While scripture is very clear about the necessity of Christ's death in order for us to be saved, some believe this would make God a bloodthirsty barbarian embedded within the structure of the emerging church is just such a belief, end quote. You have some professing Christians who are emergent church leaders. There's others. Some professing emergent church leaders and churches say, many of them, that they love the cross. They respect the cross. But then they go on to deny the power of the cross. They say that Jesus going to the cross was an example of sacrifice and servanthood that we should all follow, all emulate. But the idea that God would send his son to a violent death for the sins of mankind, well, they say, that is not who God is. They maintain that a loving God would never do that. Such a violent act would make Christianity, their words, a slaughterhouse religion, end quote. The cross is good. It, it's a beautiful example of servanthood and sacrifice. We should all practice that. But this idea that Jesus shed blood on Calvary's cross, atoned for our sins, that's barbaric. That's sick. That's not God. They say. In fact, that would be a slaughterhouse religion. What? What? Isn't that exactly what the Christian faith is? 
Let me read to you Isaiah 53, verse 7. He, Jesus, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb, listen, to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then, of course, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 knowing that you were not redeemed, or in other words, not purchased out of slavery to sin and Satan, with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of, from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Guys, sin all sin, in whatever vile form it takes, is an affront to God who is pure and holy and absolutely righteous. The Bible says he cannot bear to look upon sin, let alone have fellowship with anyone defiled by sin, unless that person or unless that sin has been atoned for. The Old Testament word is kafar, which means a covering. But as one pastor put it, and I quote, you can't cover something as vile as sin with taffeta and lace. It takes blood. Which means something or someone has to die. Now in the Old Testament, that something was the animal sacrifices that God allowed to, listen, temporarily cover the guilt of sin so that they could have fellowship with God. The blood of goats and bulls and lambs and rams could not take away sin, but God allowed the blood of these animals to temporarily cover sin that they might have fellowship with God, Israel. In the New Testament, that someone was the Lamb of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose blood alone could take away the sin of the world. Look, sin is so egregious in the eyes of God that only a blood sacrifice can atone for it because all sin carries a death penalty with it. Even as God said, the soul that sins shall surely die. You can read uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Look, when Adam and Eve first sinned, we, you all know the story, okay? But when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, their eyes were opened. They were no longer innocent. They knew good from evil. And the first thing they did was they tried to cover the shame. They, they for the first time, realized they were naked. And so what they did, first thing they did was to uh, try to cover the uh, shame of their nakedness by weaving together fig leaves as a covering. They reasoned that they could cover the shame of their nakedness through the works of their hands. Whether you know it or not, that was the first time religion entered planet Earth. Religion is all based on what I do. Go to church, light candles, pray rosaries, sacrifice this or that, keep holy days. All the things that I do to make myself righteous in the sight of God and earn heaven. The work through the works of my hands, 
I can appease God and cover my own sins. Well, God says, no, that's not going to work. You know, first of all, who told you you were naked? Why are you wearing them fig leaves? Well, we were naked and ashamed. Well, who told you you were naked? And by the way, God doesn't ask questions to gain information. He's trying to draw out confessions, you know. Like the mom who tells her little five-year-old, I'm going to run next door to get an egg. Don't eat any cookies because I got dinner cooking. I'll be, I'll be back in, you know, 30 seconds. She runs next door, comes back. She finds the chair pulled up to the counter, the top of the cookie jar off, cookie crumbs on the counter, and she turns to her little five-year-old and said, did you eat cookies when I told you not to? She knows the answer. She's trying to get a confession out of the little tot. But God was trying to do the same thing. And um, God said, that's not going to do. You'll never be able to cover the shame of your sin with the works of your hands. And so God made them stand there while he took two animals from the garden and killed these animals right in front of them. Why did he do that? Well, to teach them, first of all, that it's only through the shedding of blood that sin can be atoned for, covered, but also that it would have to be the innocent dying for the guilty. Look, let me just tell you this. <laughs> I, I, I know I've heard people say, not in, in evangelical circles, well, you hear folks, you know, on TV and radio and different things who are sincerely repulsed by the message of Christianity, the gospel. And, and let me just say this. No, blood atonement isn't a pretty thing. It was never intended by God to be nice and neat and sophisticated and sweet. The reality is that it's cruel, barbaric, gruesome, and bloody. I'm convinced if God right now would give us a portal into the past where right now it would open up and we would see Jesus as he was, as he hung on that cross the day he was crucified, I'm convinced as we looked upon our Savior, not realizing the, the torture and how he was brutalized, I think it would make most of us physically ill on the spot. I'm convinced of that. We've sanitized it, haven't we? Even in the paintings and TV, they, they couldn't even begin to show you what Jesus really looked like after he was brutalized by the soldiers, beaten bloody, beard ripped off his face. And he hung on that cross, a sacrifice for sin that he didn't commit, but dying for sinners he loved with all of his heart, we would be shocked. In fact, the Bible says, I think Isaiah, the first time we see him, our mouths are going to be shut in shocked silence at what we were not told. It's, it's going to be quite a scene when we first see him. He's going to bear the marks of his crucifixion probably for all eternity and we've dealt with this you can go back and read uh, john 21 around verses 8 to 12 
So, you know, when people say, well, I, I think that the Christian gospel is barbaric. Yes. I think it's a slaughterhouse religion. Yes. You're getting it. Isn't it interesting? By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. It's not that they don't understand the truth. They know that they don't accept the truth. Yeah, it is barbaric. Um, God never intended blood atonement to be a sophisticated uh, thing. And yet today, all of that is changing in certain church circles. As many church leaders are ashamed of the gospel. They're embarrassed by the notion that we are saved by the blood of Christ because in their mind, again, it sounds barbaric, uncouth, and repulsive. So they are denying the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, even though the New Testament is replete with statements affirming this doctrine. And there are dozens and dozens. I'll just give you three. Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he paid the price that we owed. He died the death that was ours to die as somebody has put it, he paid a price he didn't know. I owed a price I couldn't pay. In John 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have eternal life. But guys, what is it? These scriptures don't matter. To those, well, they don't matter. Um, to those attacking the gospel, who profess to be Christians, they 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 don't care what. The, they have reasoned that they know better. You show them scriptures like this, and they explain around it. They they try to get around it, and they have all their little things. But um, the Bible doesn't matter to them who are attacking the gospel, are attacking, um, you know, penal substitution. And yet they call themselves Christians. Look, author Steve Chalk, and he's by no means alone, but Steve Chalk in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, makes the claim that such a doctrine, penal substitution, turns God the Father, his words, into a cosmic child abuser. In other words, if a neighbor's kid playing baseball broke your window and the father was home, saw that his window had been broken, knew the neighbor's kid had done it, but goes into his son's bedroom, drags his son out, and beats him mercilessly, that's how they reason the gospel message is unfair. Why would God beat his own son to death? For others who have sinned. 
That's not fair. That's not the God we serve. You know what I say to that? Get thee behind me, Satan. You obviously don't know the gospel, nor do you care to know the gospel. That's the whole idea behind the gospel. The innocent died for the guilty. But again, this shouldn't shock us. It's actually a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Turn to 2 Peter 2. And we're taking a little extra time with verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 because they are the crux of the whole book, basically. But again, this idea that there would be in the last days people who would attack the very foundation of the gospel, claiming that, no, 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 that's not what the blood of Jesus did. Atone for our sins. Shouldn't shock us. It's actually a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were also false, false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, even as there will be false teachers among you living in the New Testament times. These false prophets will secretly bring in destructive heresies, listen, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So Peter is telling us that in the last days we would see those in the church who would deny the gospel by denying that the blood of Jesus Christ atoned for our sins. No, it didn't, they say. Um, but we know the Bible says the blood of Christ and only Jesus' blood uh, could have uh, atoned for our sins, could have purchased us out of slavery to the devil and brought us into the glorious liberty of the children of God through Christ. Look, I don't think most Christians realize how great a work of God went into redemption. And we've talked about this, so I'm not going to belabor it. I just want to touch on it. I don't think a lot of Christians understand what was involved in God redeeming us. You know, we talk about the vastness of the universe God created with its billions of galaxies and trillions of stars, an incredible thing to contemplate. Just the vast size of the universe. Um, spectacular thing to behold. But look, as spectacular as the physical creation is, do you realize that only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to the creation, the physical creation? 31 verses in Genesis 1. And the rest of the entire Bible is devoted to redemption. The Bible tells us that creation was the work of God's fingers. Psalm 8, verse 3. The psalmist said, When I, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, little finger work, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and he goes on. The work of creation was finger work to God. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says, listen, he bared his arms. Or in other words, he rolled up his sleeves. Because that's where the real work came in. The work of redemption, or as Paul put it, 
Paul the Apostle put it, the work of the new creation, saving people, was far more involved and from a human standpoint, far more difficult to accomplish than was the original physical creation. In the creation of the physical universe, all God had to do was what? Speak. And everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, well, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human form, had to die. Because God could not speak away sin. It had to be paid for. Now, we couldn't pay for it ourselves because sinners can't die for sinners. It would take God, in his mercy and great love, to come down and become one of us because it had to be a kinsman redeemer. God, the whole book of Ruth is based on that principle. It had to be a near kinsman. It had to be a kinsman redeemer, a go-well who alone could redeem us. That's why Jesus Christ had to become a man. He had to become a le legitimate son of Adam while he still maintained his divinity as the son of God. God couldn't just speak our sins away. People, a lot of unbelievers don't get that. They don't understand that. Aren't we blew it? Can't God just give us a mulligan? Can't we, can't we have a do-over? Can't the Lord just sweep it under the rug and we'll start over? That's how we would do it. God can't do that. Your sin has to be paid for. And we couldn't do it. So if God didn't become one of us and die in our place, we would go on forever in our fallen state and there would be no hope of redemption ever. We'd be doomed to spend eternity in hell the lake of fire, without any hope of redemption. The blood of Christ was absolutely essential. And yet, Episcopal priest Alan Jones, in his book, Reimagining Christianity, be careful, whenever somebody says reinventing Christianity, reimagining Christianity, revising Christianity, those are red flags. Stay away from those books. But yet, Episcop Episcopal priest Alan Jones in this book, Reimagining Christianity, which, by the way, many in the emerging church, uh, emerging church leaders endorse. And they're not the only ones. He said, Alan Jones said, that God never intended Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to be considered a payment for our sins. Here's what he said. And I'm quoting him. The church's fixation on the death of Jesus as the universal saving act must end. And the place of the cross must be reimagined in the Christian faith. Why? Because of the cult, his word, the cult of suffering and the, and the vindictive God behind it. The other thread of just criticism addresses the suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution, the cross, was the name of this vile doctrine. This is what's out there, folks. This is what is out there. I've had people come to our church and say, Pastor, you don't have any idea 
what's out there. And, I, and for the most part, I don't think I do. I'm here with you guys every Sunday. <laughs> I'm not out there checking churches out. But you see enough of them, various platforms and things, spouting off this. Peter's right. In the last days would come people, heretics, who would deny the Lord who bought them, that his blood did not purchase our salvation, did not atone for our sins. And yet, guys, biblical atonement has always been based on blood sacrifice. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you know what? Maybe somebody is watching online tonight, and this is all new to them. So just be patient. Blood atonement has always been based on on the blood sacrifice in both the Old and the New Testaments. I'll just read these two. You know them. You can write down the addresses. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I wish George Washington's doctors had read this. You remember the story about George Washington. He was sick, and in those days they thought it was because of bad blood. So they kept bloodletting, you know, just kept removing blood. They took so much of his blood, he died. All they had to do was read Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. <laughs> Don't do that. Whoops. Yeah, I'm sure they, eventually the medical community figured it out. But anyway, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, God said, upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Because the soul that sins shall surely die. Sin requires the death of something, Old Testament animal sacrifice, and in the New Covenant, someone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who didn't, whose blood didn't just cover sins. It took away our sins once and for all, right? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of, I'll paraphrase, his blood, there is no remission of our sins. John 1.29, the next day Jesus or John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I'll end with this. William Cowper, in his famous hymn, writes, You know, hymnals used to be full of hymns like this. All right, let me read it to you, and then I'll make a point, and we'll close. William Cowper, uh, uh, Cowper, very famous hymn, beautiful hymn, classic. He said, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I though vile as he washed all my sins away. Right? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The church has gotten away from these hymns. In fact, I told you the story of a, a, a new young pastor coming to a church that had been around for many years, and he was taking the over. Now the old, older, the old pastor retired. And so the worship leader, you know, played songs like worship songs that Sunday, first Sunday for this young pre, uh, for young pastor. And the worship leader played songs about the blood, 
you know, maybe he played this one. I don't know. But, uh, you know, just talking about the blood, how it washes us clean and so on. The, the young pastor took him aside after the service and said, if you ever play songs like that again, I will fire you. Those songs are barbaric. We're going to keep things positive around here from now on. Yeah. So positive, you're going to posit people right out of heaven because you're moving away from the very foundation of the gospel, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We'll pick it up next time, God willing. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, a willing sacrifice, who went to the cross freely because he loved us so much. And he knew that without the shedding of his blood, we could never be saved. Our sins could never be forgiven. And we thank you, Lord, that our Savior loved us so much, he became our substitute. He was beat for us, beaten for us. He was crucified to pay our penalty. And by his blood, we are healed. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name.